Welcome to the podcast that takes you back in time to rewind and relive all things nostalgia in the world of professional wrestling. Get ready to go beyond the bell. With your host, ring announcer, Sean Beckerman. It was known as the granddaddy of them all. A precursor to the showcase of the immortals. The Super Bowl of professional wrestling, WrestleMania. It was out of the mind of the American dream, Dusty Rhodes, as Starcade was born. Before there was WrestleMania, there was the NWA Starcade Extravaganza. On this edition of Beyond the Bell, we take you back in time to relive the entire history of the biggest event for the NWA and WCW, Starcade. In 1983, Jim Crockett Jr. was trying to come up with an idea for an event that would act as the blow-off for all the major feuds in his Mid-Atlantic territory. Crockett, along with Booker Dusty Rhodes, came up with Starcade, an annual Thanksgiving spectacular. Each year, the hottest feuds involving the top stars in Crockett's territory mixed in with wrestlers from the other NWA offices would be booked on the annual card highlighted by a title defense by the NWA World Heavyweight Champion. Whenever an NWA WCW announcer proclaimed Starcade as the granddaddy of them all, you better believe him. Before there was a WrestleMania, there was Starcade, the original Supercard. Fight TV, the cross-section of entertainment and technology. Just open the app and it will automatically connect with your smart TV. All you need to do is choose a video and press play. Download the Fight TV app for free from iTunes and Google Play. The Fight TV app is your home for everything that happens in the cage, on the mat, and between the ropes. The event was created by Jim Crockett Promotions for the purpose of giving the wrestlers their own Super Bowl. The first ever Starcade took place in 1983 in Greensboro, North Carolina at the Greensboro Coliseum. Since then, Starcade has been the only WCW event that has not ever been moved from the WCW big event pay-per-view lineup. Back in the old days, professional wrestling thrived on promoting events on big-time national holidays, like the NFL on Thanksgiving on Thursdays. Pro wrestling used to follow the same model. Promoters' logic was that having pro wrestling on Thanksgiving or Christmas night would give fans and families something to do after the day's events were through. We saw the Von Erichs do it in Texas with WCCW, and initially Survivor Series was on Thanksgiving night. 
years before Survivor Series was the Thanksgiving tradition, there was the NWA's Starcade. Starcade conceived by Jim Crockett Promotions in North Carolina was the original supercard and the precursor to all big time events that followed after. It even predated WrestleMania by two years. Starcade was the NWA and later WCW's annual premier event, the granddaddy of them all. It was the event that closed up longtime rivalries and set up the seeds for a whole new year of vendettas. And in, in its 18-year legacy, there was a multitude of high points and a series of best-forgotten low points as well. Tonight, we'll look back at the history of Starcade. It all started with closed-circuit television. Early NWA and WCW pay-per-views always had one unique thing about them. Their yearly events always had some sort of subtitle or theme to help differentiate it from the previous year's outing. Starcade was no different. The debut inaugural edition of Starcade took place in 1983, like I mentioned. It was entitled A Flare for the Gold. The initial Starcade was built around Ric Flair's chase for his second reign as NWA World Heavyweight Champion. Three decades ago, Flair was considered the hot young rookie chasing grizzled veteran champ Harley Race. It's amazing how things have changed in just a little bit more than a quarter of a century. Flair was successful in his bid as a pin race in a steel cage match to begin his legacy as a star in the industry. The entire car was based on blowing off major feuds and storylines and featured other big-time matches. Other feature contests saw Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood beat Jack and Jerry Briscoe for the NWA Tag Team Championship, and Roddy Piper defeated Greg the Hammer Valentine in a vicious and historic dog collar match. The first ever Starcade set the tone that this was the premier event for the National Wrestling Alliance. November 24th, 1983. Uneasy is the head that wears the crown for the legendary king of wrestling, Harley Race. 1983's NWA Starcade is where his worst fears were realized. A flamboyant upstart, the nature boy, Ric Flair, posed a threat to the king's extensive championship reign. A few weeks prior, Race's brute squad pile drove Flair to the brink of retirement, but Flair showed the resilience that would later define his career. On this night, the NWA title would be decided inside a steel cage. Two iron men of the ring locked up in a legendary battle. It was as if Lou Gehrig and Cal Ripken could have played on the same field. You're watching these two tremendous gladiators battling it out for the World Heavyweight Championship. The unforgiving steel helped deliver justice with a firm hand. And he's going to go to that gate. Flair's visions of the goal have got to be a little blurred at this point. Flair's coup would gain perspective with the passing of time. Here's Flair up on the top row. Time champion dethroned by a future 16-time world heavyweight champion, a standard that may never be equaled. Ric Flair has done what many people consider to be impossible. This is the greatest night of my life. Thank you, Mr. Very much. 
Relive this timeless footage and other unforgettable WWE moments right now on WWE Classics On Demand. Then in 1984, Starcade was entitled The Million Dollar Challenge. This year's event would feature one of the many chapters of the long-standing rivalry between the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes, and Nature Boy, Ric Flair. Their bout was for Flair's NWA World Championship and $1 million in prize money. Flair won the match and the money when special guest referee and famed boxer Joe Frazier stopped the match due to a cut on Dusty's forehead. This also showed then NWA seeming to be ahead of the curve by using other sports celebrities, as the appearance of Frazier predates the celebrity-filled WrestleMania by a few months. The other two main championship matches saw Tully Blanchard defend the World Television Championship against Ricky Steamboat, while NWA United States Champion Wahoo McDaniel defeated superstar Billy Graham. Then in 1985, there was The Gathering. Starcade's theme, known as The Gathering, the concept of The Gathering, came about as the event was broadcast from both the Omni in Atlanta and the Coliseum in Greensboro, North Carolina. The idea of broadcasting from multiple events would also be lifted by the WWF a few months later for their WrestleMania 2 Super Show, being placed in three venues rather than two. The card was stacked with 15 matches and seven championship bouts in all between the two locations. The main event was a continuation of the Rhodes Flair NWA Championship feud. And this time around, Rhodes came out the victor by disqualification, though due to interference from the Andersons. Elsewhere on the show, the Rock and Roll Express continued their 80s dominance by winning the Tag Team Championship from the Russians, the Koloffs. The Andersons kept their National Tag Team Championship against Billy Jack Haynes and Wahoo McDaniel, and Magnum T.A. beat Tully Blanchard for the U.S. Championship in the infamous I Quit Steel Cage match. Other various defunct titles were also showcased, as Crusher Khrushchev beat Sam Houston for the NWA Mid-Atlantic Heavyweight Championship, and Buddy Landell got the National Heavyweight Championship from Terry Taylor. In 1986, there was the Night of the Skywalkers. Night of the Skywalkers was so indicative of the big scaffold match between the Road Warriors and the Midnight Express. The Warriors won the match, but the real story to come out of it was the legit knee injury suffered by Jim Cornette after taking a bad bump off the scaffold. The injury still nagged Cornette to this very day. This match was innovative at the time, dangerous to say the least, and it fit the bill for a Starcade event. The advertised main event for the show was going to be the big-time blow-off between Magnum T.A. and Ric Flair in a match that would send Magnum ideally into superstardom. Unfortunately, Magnum suffered a vicious car wreck only weeks before the event that tragically ended Magnum's in-ring career right before it was about to take off. The evil communist at the time, Nikita Koloff, was hastily turned into a hero and inserted into Magnum's spot. He and Flair would go on to a double disqualification. 
other high spots from the show saw the Rock and Roll Express retain their tag team championships over the Andersons. Tully Blanchard beat Dusty Rhodes for the world TV title in a first blood match. And Wahoo McDaniel victoriously won his, t- his, his contest against a young upstart Rick Rude in an Indian strap match. Jimmy Valiant also beat Paul Jones in a hair versus hair match to finally blow off their years-long feud. Dusty always pushed us, always took care of us. Uh, you know, any time that he said, to, you know, the scaffold match was... He talked, he tried to talk me into doing, okay, we have the meeting, Starcade meeting. It was a right. big deal for him. We have Starcade meeting a week before Ennis. The only time of the year, only show of the year that you would actually get your finish before you got in the building at night. When I had plenty of time to think about it. So he's sitting there in the office on Briar Bend in uh, Charlotte, and uh, he's got the corner office, right? He's got a bigger office than Jimmy Crockett. Jimmy Crockett didn't care whether his office was big or not. Dusty's sitting behind the desk, he's like, no. Here's what I'm thinking now. We, we, we got to beat the Midnight Express just because, you know, it's, 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 it's the road boys. We got to beat the Midnight Express because we got to have the blow off. But here's what I want you to do, baby. Now, I'm just thinking that if if after if after that, uh, Bobby can take a little bump off the scaffold. And, and then the country take a little bump off the scaffold. <laughs> that real down, you know, he did a bump off. He said 25 feet, you know. Take a little bump off the gavel. Then, then maybe Paul Ellery would be chasing you. And I, you know, I don't do as good a Dusty as I used to because you got you to gotta be around him and hearing him, to, you know. But Paul Ellering chase you and the animal chase you and they'll run me up the scaffold and I'll hang off of it and then I'll never forget. He said, and you kick your feet up and there's Big Bubba Rogers and Dennis Condry bobbing in the, in the ring and they'll catch you like they catch the girls at the football games. And I'm buying this because it's coming from Dusty and he could sell you the, the, you know, glasses off your own face. I don't remember whether it was 21 feet after they chopped the section off after we all nearly killed ourselves or whether it was, it was like, it was 25 feet in the air. Even if I'm six feet tall, my, there's another two and a half, eight and a half, that still gives me approximately 14 feet between my feet and the ring, which is way too goddamn far. Right. So I looked up at that, and Dennis is looking, and Bobby's looking, and I said, boys, University of Alabama Crimson Tide couldn't catch me like they catch the girls at the football games. I said, so I got the bright idea. Bubba. I, well, we jumped way ahead of territory, but what the hell? Bubba. Six foot eight, 330 pounds. Baddest man in the world, you know, Big Bubba Rogers. Here's what you do. I've seen something on TV about how when they parachute, you know, they they drop and roll, right? Drop and roll. I think I think it was the motherfuckers were on fire or something. I can't remember exactly, but I thought at the time it was when you're falling from a high place, you drop it. So anyway, I'm thinking Animal is the stronger one of the two. So I went to him because I love those guys. They always, you know, they, they treat us good, you know. So I said, look, I said, I, I'm not, Joe, I'm not particularly fond of heights, but what I'm going to do is I'm not going to look. Paul will chase me up the, the ladder. When I get up there, I'm going to do the take like I'm seeing. I'm, as you notice on the tape, I do this like I'm looking around. I ain't looking at shit. I'm looking at the floor of that scaffold right there. I never saw the Omni. Never saw down. I said, I'll run out in the middle. I said, I'll drop down to my belly. And it looks so bad on tape today. It looks so right. deliberately staged. And I, but, but I mean, you know, goddamn, I was scared I was going to die. So I drop down on my belly and I'll reach and I practiced this for like a week. And excuse me, but my wife then did not know this was going to happen until she saw me fall. Because if I had, yeah, that's the same thing I said afterwards. But if I'd have told her that, you know, then there would have been brouhaha there and I was going to do it anyway. <clears throat> so at home when I'd catch her out of the bedroom, 
because we had like a bed that had kind of like the edge and it had like a little rail under it. It was a captain's. I'd, I'd be like, okay, now I'll lean over the edge and I'll grab, I could have both hands on those rungs before I. So I had Animal grab my leg. When I got both hands on the rungs, I'm going to tell him, let go of me, which I say loud enough you can hear it on the tape, but right. it's not, let go of me. Okay. He lets go of my leg. I'm hanging underneath there. I'm going to count to five to make sure that I'm not swinging. And then when I drop, I'm going to put my arms out to my sides. And Bubba's going to have his arms like this. He's six foot eight, 330 pounds. He'll give me a little support. And when, we, when I get into his arms, we'll both drop and roll to the left. That was our plan. Okay. First of all, Bobby fell like this. Dennis fell like that. I fell like this. Bubba's standing there. He never played baseball, I guess. He lost me in the lights. I don't know. You know, when I let go, it was like I could hear the tornado coming. It was like the wind was whistling in my ears for like five or six minutes before I hit the ground. Right. I let go, and the next thing I knew, my back of my head exploded. What had happened was he's standing there like that, and I went completely through his arms, and he looks down like that, and when I hit and my knee bent completely sideways in a manner or other which nature intended, it caused me to whiplash back, and the back of my head hit his knee, fortunately knocking me temporarily senseless and serving as a natural anesthetic to the fact that I thought a bone was going to be sticking out of my leg. I'm sorry, it was this one anyway. So, <clears throat> that one was later. But, um, so then I'm like, oh yeah. Yeah, there's got to be some kind of bone coming out of my leg, right? It was like a gradual awareness that I'm in tremendous pain. And then when I try to talk, and I realize, Bob Blaze, what's up here? You listen on the tape once again, I sound like uh, Pee Wee Herman. Right. Couldn't get it, couldn't get it out. It was, because my whole body was in shock from that. My leg actually just went the wrong goddamn way. So I'm screaming at Bubba, carry me, carry me as best I can in this Mickey Mouse voice. He's, oh yeah, he thinks I'm sick. I love the way you sell. <laughs> I'm shooting, I'm shooting. Bubba's only been in business about nine months at this point. He thought I said, I'm shitting, I'm shitting. <laughs> he didn't know whether I was excited or whether I was just shitting with him right. or, you know, I'm saying, Bubba, carry my goddamn ass now. And finally got it out. And then he was like, Jimmy, you're hurt. Because that's, that's the way he talked. Jimmy, you're hurt. <laughs> and so they fucking got me back to the locker room and everything. And Bobby had, had turned his ankle because he kind of fell one footed. So we said, you know, they had more of these booked already. It's, it's too high. It's not a good idea. Somebody's going to like die. So they, they jacked down a section on them three or four feet after that. We were the, the test case, crash test dummies. But anyway, so the, I said, oh, I'll put a knee sleeve on it. And, you know, and they, one of the guys gave Sam Houston gave me his knee sleeve. I put it on. And I go to the hotel. And I'm thinking, well, you know, Star King, goddamn, we were the you know, feature match. We weren't the main event, but they right. named it after us. Goddamn. Only been in the business four years. Next morning, I woke up. My knee was so big, not only couldn't I bend it, I couldn't hop on the other leg because the motion caused me to scream. I had to get in the back, I had to, I had to send my wife, eh, send my wife across the interstate to get a, a set of crutches, which it took me 20 minutes to get from my room to the car. It was so big, it just, I, 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 it's so big it wasn't true, as, as uh, Adrian would say. And I had to sit in the back seat with my leg on like two pillows straight, not straight to home to Charlotte, but straight to meet the doctor who, you know, worked on all the boys. And he, he said, I got to drain it, right? Boom, sticks a needle in. And I'm, this is a new experience for me right, right at this point. I'm not a college football player, you know. Yeah. Um, he starts pulling that blood out of there. It wasn't fluid, it was all blood. I'd torn everything. And as he starts pulling, I'm going, ah, oh, shit. And he changes it. 
thing, puts the other what, right. the cartridge, the hypodermic, whatever. He changes it and put with the same needle, puts a different gimmick on it. He's got like attachments. Third one, and finally, well, she takes the thing off, gets a bedpan, and is squeezing blood out of my knee from this tap like a maple tree into a bedpan. And he said, well, that's not good because I see there's some, uh, there's some white uh, fatty tissue. Uh, that means there's definitely tears. I'm like, what do you need to do? Well, we can operate on it. Uh, we, we'll, we'll go in and scope it um, day after tomorrow. And um, if the ligament is torn, which I have good reason to believe it is, then we can fix it then and you'll only be in a cast for a couple weeks on crutches for a month and you can fully rehab it in six months because it couldn't fix the ACL with scopes then. Right. Or we can just clean off the, because it's like a broom when it breaks. It's, it sounds like a broomstick because this one I heard clearly. This one wasn't coming off a scaffold. It just hit the wrong place in the ring. It sounds like a broomstick snapping. And it's like that. It's all like that. So they go in and that will fuck with you because there's nerve endings in that. So they go in and they just shave it off where it's like that. I said, do that. You know, I'm not doing moonsaults. I'm right. not drop kicking off the top rope. I talk. I hit people with rackets. I think I can get by. I'm not going to, you know, be on crutches for six months or whatever. So, sure enough, you know, and I wake up, anesthetic, and, uh, and yeah, it's all fucked up. Uh, cartilage, ligament, and the meniscus, everything. Now, we're going to focus in on the forgotten supercard, arguably the best Starcade of all time, in 1987. Build as Shy Town Heat. In this day and age, any pay per view is considered by those within the business as a supercard, or it's seem, seemingly to be lessened, and that term is loosely used with the most recent pay per view events we've seen. But unfortunately for wrestling fans these days, a supercard is rarely all that really super. To enlighten the newer fans as to what the term supercard once meant, we can analyze perhaps the greatest supercard of them all, NWA's 87 edition, Chi-Town Heat. On November 26th, Thanksgiving night, a sellout crowd at the UIC Pavilion in Chicago, Illinois, saw perhaps what is arguably one of the greatest events of all time. This event certainly made an impact on everyone that watched it, especially those within the industry. The build-up to the event itself was almost a year-long affair, falling on the heels of Jim Crockett's purchase of Bill Watts' UWF promotion. This event promised many great matches, including a few interpromotional matches. In modern day, you can kind of relate it to the first Invasion pay-per-view when the WWF purchased WCW, but that would even touch this event. In the opening match... The team of Eddie Gilbert, Rick Steiner, and Larry Zabisco wrestled the team of Sting, Jimmy Garvin, and Michael P.S. Hayes to a time limit draw. This match was a semi-big deal as Sting had recently turned face and began feuding with his former teammates, Gilbert and Steiner. This was the first interpromotional match as Sting, Gilbert, and Steiner had been with the UWF up until that point. This was a huge coup for the National Wrestling Alliance, as all of you know that Sting eventually would become a megastar within the business, and this match was one of the first Sting wrestled as a fan favorite in the NWA. The second match saw UWF heavyweight champion Dr. Death Steve Williams defend his championship against the UWF Western States Heritage Champion, the only UWF title that the NWA kept after the event. Barry Windham. This was a rare good guy versus good guy encounter that saw Williams pin Windham to retain his title. 
not exactly a classic match, but definitely worth watching. The card from here on out was nothing short of unreal in terms of the crowd engagement. Next up was the Rock and Roll Express versus the Midnight Express in a scaffold match. This match was red hot in the NWA. They used it, like I mentioned, in 86, and they felt that they needed to do it again in 87. Anytime the Rock and Roll Express and the Midnighters got together, the chemistry they had with each other and with the crowd made the match a success. Any match that they participated in. We mentioned this in our famous famous feuds edition, talking about the Rock and Rollers versus the Midnighters. By all means, the match wasn't great, but the crowd ate up every minute of the match. Cornette did not have luck in these scaffold matches. In late 87, after the merger between the UWF and NWA, the only champion versus champion match would be Nikita Koloff, the NWA TV champion, versus Terry Taylor, the UWF TV champion. Once Saturday night on TBS... Nikita was ambushed after match by Terry Taylor, who had stolen Nikita's title and promised victory at Starcade. Nikita was quite possibly the most over guy of the entire night in Chicago. Aside from the Nature Boy, of course, the match had perfect psychology with Taylor and his manager, Eddie Gilbert, repeatedly double-teaming Nikita throughout the match behind the referee's back. The conclusion of the match saw Nikita grabbing Gilbert who was attempting to choke him and sending him into a charging Terry Taylor. While Taylor regained his feet, Nikita hit his signature clothesline. That's right, a clothesline, the Russian sickle, to what has to be one of the biggest pops of all time. Not flying 15, 30 feet in the air, not doing dangerous moves, but a clothesline. Just like if you watch the New Japan Pro Wrestling events, especially Wrestle Kingdom 9, the Rainmaker, the drop kick that Okada delivers can send the fans crazy, send them going nuts. Instead of doing high fly moves, simple, basic moves can make the crowd erupt. Yes, now it's a little different this day and age, but it's amazing. A simple move like this can make such an impact in an actual competitive match with the interaction of the fans. The only other pop that you could say beat that one out that night was the one after the ref slapped the mat the third time and Nikita had won the contest. While not remembered for being one of the most popular guys in the business, Nikita had the most impressive crowd reaction of the night. Again, we're excluding the champ, Nature Boy. The crowd's reaction was so impressive for Nikita's win. You have to watch this match. A great encounter between the two. Up next, Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson defending the NWA Tag Team titles against the Road Warriors, Hawk and Animal. This match was solid. The only downside was the old dusty finish where the Warriors seemingly had the titles won. A second ref had entered the match and the first ref well, after the first ref was knocked down, a three count was made and the Road Warriors had the titles until the first ref got up. Disqualified the Road Warriors because Animal had run in, run in straight to the ref and to himself and returned the titles back to Tully Nauert. Again, the crowd ate it up and reacted exactly how they were supposed to. The dusty finish worked, but not when you did it all the time and too much. Next up, Lex Luger defended his United States Championship 
against Dusty Rhodes in a steel cage. If anyone ever doubts how over Dusty Rhodes was, watch this matchup. Rhodes had the crowd eating out of the palm of his hand, and it didn't hurt his popularity any with the fact that Luger was probably at this point more hated than Ric Flair at least in Chicago on this night. The match ended with J.J. Dillon tossing a chair over the cage for Luger and Luger getting DDT'd onto it by Dusty when he bent down to pick it up. A three count later, and Dusty had won what would prove to be his very last NWA championship. Then in the main event, Ronnie Garvin defended the NWA World heavyweight championship against the nature boy Ric Flair in a steel cage match. Two cage matches in a row. That's right, folks. Anyway, while Garvin was supposed to be the fan favorite in the match, his lack of charisma almost forced the fans to eventually start cheering for the nature boy. That's not to say that Garvin wasn't a great wrestler or competitor or even a great champion, but he's no Ric Flair. On this night, Flair again would escape with the gold, bringing the crowd to their feet in a thunderous applause for the effort put forth by both superstars inside the ring. Overall, the crowd on this night was perhaps the greatest crowd fans have ever seen, live or otherwise. It rivaled the old MSG crowds where Bruno San Martino defended his WWF championship. With only seven matches on the card, it was definitely a challenge for the NWA to step up and deliver, but they did more than that. On Thanksgiving night in 1987, they made history with one of the greatest supercards in wrestling history. If only the NWA had kept putting out matches of this quality, they would have continued to sell at arenas. But this event will go down as one, if not the greatest Starcade ever. Then in 1988, Starcade was known as True Grit. On paper, True Grit looked to be a very good card. There was the blow-off to the Midnight Express storyline, as Jim Cornette's Midnight Express team of Bobby Ian and Sweet Stan Lane beat Paulie Dangerously's original Midnight Express of Randy Rose and Dennis Condry. A young Rick Steiner won the NWA television title for Mike Rotunda and earned quite a large pop for his victory. The other top matches saw a super team of Sting and Dusty Rhodes beat NWA World Tag Team Champions, the Road Warriors, by disqualification when Ric Flair pinned Luger to keep the NWA World title. However, the pay-per-view quizzically ended with a bunkhouse stampede battle royal, which was won by the Junkyard Dog, a very strange ending to the event. Who's the strongest man in the NWA? Who's the tag team to be feared? Find out as these and other NWA superstars take to the ring of the Turner Home Entertainment home video premiere. Future Shop. Stargate 89. Future Shop. is priced to just $39.98 per cassette. See who's the strongest man in the world when Turner Home Entertainment presents Stargate 89. Future Shop. In 1989. Future Shock. Night of the Iron Man. Rather than the 1989 event featuring a card of blow-offs and championship matches. Instead, it hosted two mini Ironman tournaments where four single stars would all battle each other in one-on-one matches to determine a true Ironman, while four tag teams 
would also battle each other to determine the promotion's top team. Each win was scored a point total based on pinfalls and submissions, disqualification, countout, draw, or loss. The four singles wrestlers included Sting, Ric Flair, The Great Muda, and Lex Luger, with Sting coming out victorious. The four teams included the Road Warriors, the Steiner Brothers, Doom, and the Samoan SWAT team, with the Road Warriors emerging as victors. The card was notable for the first Road Warriors-Steiners match and the Sting-Flair match that led to Sting's removal from the Four Horsemen and the major turning point in the long-standing Flair-Sting feud. This event this this year's event had a feel of a had a sports atmosphere, a sports like feel to it with the point system. Me as being an old school fan of this genre, I liked this aspect of it, gave it a different variety, and it made it intriguing. It made a superstar like Sting by going over these top stars, and it created a little controversy and also at the same time garnered a reputation of being a competitive event. Sting now controlling the action, sending Muda for the ride. He's got him up, great strength, with a military press and the slam. Sting, he dropped Muda right off the top, and he straddles the steel cable there. What a disadvantage Muda is in now. Superplex time. Will he be able to get him up? Yes, he can. Superplex. Sting, can he do it? One. Ladies and gentlemen, the winner of the match by pinfall, the scoring 20 points is Before you make that trip to Grandma's, before you unwrap those presents, your family to the hottest event of the holiday season, Starcade 30 Collision Course, live on pay-per-view. Witness the ultimate confrontation between Sting and the Black Scorpion. See the first ever tag team championship of the universe, and much more. Order this unforgettable gift for the entire family. Starcade 90 Collision Course, a live pay-per-view spectacular, Sunday, December 16th. Then in 1990, there was a collision course. This was the final Starcade contested under the NWA banner before the promotion would be sold and turned into World Championship Wrestling. The card was bloated with tag team matches as there was an eight-team tournament contested throughout the event. Amidst seven other non-tournament matches, the Steiners won the tournament, which featured teams representing eight different countries. Other feature contests included an NWA Tag Team Championship street fight between Doom and Ric Flair and Arn Anderson, while Lex Luger defended his U.S. championship and became victorious over Stan Hansen. The NWA was also brandishing a solid mid-card at this point as well, as Michael Wall Street beat Terry Taylor and Bobby Eaton defeated Tom Zink. The main event was the finale to the infamous Sting-Black Scorpion angle. Sting ended up pinning Scorpion in a cage match and unmasking him as Ric Flair to end the whole debacle. 80stees.com wearing one of their retro wrestling t-shirts will make you feel like a kid again like on the day you busted open your ljn wrestling superstars rubber action figures it won't make you feel as good as the day you got the ljn wrestling ring let's not kid ourselves here but you could still get yourself these awesome tees 
featuring the most legendary wrestling superstars such as the immortal Hulk Hogan, Rowdy Roddy Piper, the Ultimate Warrior, Macho Man Randy Savage, Dusty Rhodes, and many, many more. All of their tees provide a vintage look and feel. You can even be involved in the production process as you can crowdfund your favorite designs. 80stees.com. Delight and amaze the kid in us all. Welcome back. We kick it off with 1991. Battle has entered Starcade, the Lethal Lottery. Once again, rather than being used as a flagship blow-off show, Starcade was again used as an event to air a new concept, such as our previous year. This time, Battle Bowl and the Lethal Lottery. The entire card was comprised of random draw tag matches and show-ending two-ring battle royal with all the night's winners. Sting ended up winning the whole thing and earned himself a future world championship title shot. Now, in hindsight, it was a different concept. I am always a fan of the dual rings as it brings a different look, makes an event separate from others. Yes, the argument can be made that one more ring takes more seats out of the arena, less money out of the pockets of the company, specifically now WWE. But unless you're filling up all shows, granted, this is their big event and they should be sellouts regardless. You can make a case that we can't sacrifice the extra seats to draw in more people than we would have with a single ring for a special event. That's an argument. Another argument can be made that this is your biggest event of the year. It's supposed to be blowing off all feuds, your culmination of all storylines. Why ruin that or change it up with an an antiquated gimmick as a two-ring battle royal from previous tag team matches? Why don't you make that for a separate event to draw more people into the building? The name Starcade alone should have its value to bring people in knowing you're seeing a big event from WCW. Now, with all that being said, I love the concept of the random draw tag matches. It can springboard feuds. Two unassociated tag team partners can combine together in a matchup and then springboard into a feud if they lose. It just makes more more of a sensical reasoning for potential matchups instead of just throwing two random guys together and saying, you're going to feud or in the WrestleMania 18 famous feud between Booker T and edge over shampoo. I digress. This in one aspect would make sense to help springboard different rivalries, create different matchups. You won't see pit friends together against each other in a match. So many opportunities, but it could have been separate from Starcade. It was different. Go back and watch it on the WWE Network, and you can see how cool it was. Just like in the War Games, a side-by-side ring. 
not to mention in a War Games match, but now it was a Battle Royal, which was a culmination of the night's proceedings. Cool idea, but the execution could be desired in a different manner. But Starcade 91 kicked off the Battle Bowl and the Lethal Lottery. Steamboat wrecking the eyes, got wrecked. He held on, trying to pull his way back up, and he does. But he's, he's got Roots. And Root pulls Steamboat out. Uh-oh, now. Wait a Root back in. Root with a Root awakening. Now, come on. It has been a long night for both these men. They're both in magnificent condition. Sting already oh. held on. Luger thinks he hasn't won, but Sting held on. Kenny reached down. Sting with right hands. Upstairs, a kick to the gut. Another right hand. The Stinger is on fire here. Big right hand, and the world's champion is reeling. The Stinger becoming offensively dominant. This crowd is going crazy. The moment is now. He's got to do it right now. Sting with a clothesline. Luger, oh, great balance. He held on. Sting, he got him over, and Sting won it. Sting defeats Luger to win Battle Bowl. Battle Bowl returned in 1992. Apparently, 91's Battle Bowl event was deemed successful enough to be repeated once again the following year. However, this time, the Battle Bowl concept only took up half the card this time, as kind of what I mentioned previously kind of crept in, making it a full or a a more well-rounded show. The rest of the show had marquee and championship matches, such as Masachono beating the Great Muda for the NWA World Heavyweight Championship and Ron Simmons beating Steve Williams in a WCW World Championship match. At this point, historically, especially with Black History Month being here in February, Ron Simmons became the first African-American World Heavyweight Champion in WCW, now making that notch a very historical moment becoming the first African-American world champion. Shane Douglas and Ricky Steamboat also beat Brian Pillman and Barry Windham in a unified WCW-NWA World Tag Team Championship match and Sting pin Vader to win the King of Cable Tournament. The Great Muda ended up winning the show, ending Battle Royal, last eliminating Windham. You could see a rivalry brewing here between Sting and Muda, and... At this point, it was the transition of moving away from the NWA and more so to World Championship Wrestling, WCW, to compete with the initials of the WWF. The 10th anniversary took place in 1993. At this point, Vader was riding high as the Monster Heel Champion of WCW. This event was supposed to be headlined by Vader defending against Sid Vicious, but a vicious hotel room brawl, pun intended, involving scissors between Sid and Arn Anderson during a WCW tour of England led to Vicious's dismissal from the company. Ric Flair was called upon to step in and save the show, just as usual, which he did by beating the big man for the WCW World 
championship. Now, you went back, you mentioned you look for a young wrestler to be somewhat politically aware of where he is in the company and what he's asked to do. Now, you're sitting here watching Ric Flair return to the company and strap an NWA belt on someone else when you're sitting there with the WCW title. <clears throat> you have a problem with that? Uh, you know what? I was... In other words, if I knew what I knew now, and if you've heard this, um, uh, it, just in terms of politics, you know, what I could have accomplished, if I understood the wrestling game from a politic standpoint, uh, like I know it now, you know, going back mm -hmm. to that debut in the WCW, having won a few world titles over, over in Japan, wow, you know, what a weapon I could, what a, what a, uh, formidable opponent I would have been, you know, in and out of the ring. But even then, though, you said you were a Leon White that might use a couple of words. Yeah, Did you use those words to Rick? That was, uh, you know, that, I, I think that was more of just being big and strong and, and, and uh, you know, just asserting my physical will, but being able to do it from, a, you know, uh, a knowledgeable standpoint would have been a different, different thing. But... Um, yeah, you know what? I, I, there was a lot of things on it. Like, uh, let me give you two examples. Uh, the the Foley feud, it was the hottest thing in wrestling, and people just weren't buying it. They were they were loving it, um, and you know, Mick got amnesia. I mean, wow! How, how, you know, how do you justify Mick Foley getting amnesia and letting that feud go? Because it was just that's that that's what they wanted to see. Yeah. I mean, you know, we were talking about Cactus Jack in his prime, me in my prime, and um, just when they do the vignette where he's wandering around and they're trying to find him well, and they're I mean, shooting that, those things. Yeah, um, and then let's see. Um, oh God, there was there was one other thing that uh, that just was so obvious. I, I was it personal, Leon? Like, then what's the like? Why, from a business standpoint? Put out a fire like that. Um, I don't know. I, I you know, was, you know, Rick, Rick, and I, we, we would, we would uh, talk back then. I've, uh, uh, you know, I've reached out to him. And, uh, you know, in his time of need down, uh, you know, I've got on my hands and knees and, and prayed, you know, for, for his son. And uh, so, you know, what was going on then? In other words, people change. You know, people have that ability to move on and forward. But it just, think there were certain things that just were done that wasn't necessarily done for the good of the company. Understood. You know, you know. Now, when he comes back from WWF at this time, does he walk right in like he owns the joint? Uh, again, Rick Rick was, in terms of politi politically intelligent and savvy, I mean... Mm -hmm. He was the best. Ric Flair returned from the World Wrestling Federation after his year stint there, becoming WWF champion, competing against the macho man Randy Savage at WrestleMania. But Flair decided to come back to WCW. And of course, he was the saving grace for the company and was able to be the stand-in and went from heel to babyface. The returning nature boy in full vigor and classic style and profile and fashion came back but in babyface capacity to take on the monstrous Vader. Tears in his eyes after winning the championship, as also Ric Flair declared he would retire if he did not defeat Vader. 
career on the line, facing the big man Vader, all the emotion in the match. And I remember watching it on pay-per-view. It got me sucked in. And very rarely at this point, WCW shows got me sucked in. I was able to witness the Nature Boy become, once again, the WCW World Heavyweight Champion, defying all odds and storyline against Big Van Vader, a great moment in Starcade history. The undercard was full of quality championship matches as well. Sting and Road Warrior Hawk beat the Nasty Boys by disqualification in a WCW World Tag Team Championship match. Steve Austin, stunning Steve Austin, in fact, defeated Dustin Rhodes in a two-out-of-three-falls match for the United States Championship. Lord Steven Regal and Ricky Steamboat went to a time-limit draw over the TV title. I love time-limit draws. We'll go into that more in our TV title edition. And Rick Rude pinned the boss, a.k.a. the big boss man, in a WCW International Heavyweight Championship match, the 10th anniversary of Starcade, and many memorable moments, and possibly a rebound from the previous year, Battle Bowls, to now a platform to allow major feuds to have their blow-off once again, like previous years. Triple Threat was the theme for 1994. By 94's time frame, Hulk Hogan had invaded World Championship Wrestling. Hulkamania was now a part of the organization. It created a weird mix of old WCW mainstays combined with Hogan and his buddies from the World Wrestling Federation. The end result saw a series of essentially WCW versus old WWF matches. The precursor to the future Invasion pay-per-view seven years later. Vader beat Hacksaw Jim Duggan for the United States title. The Nasty Boys defeated Harlem Heat in a WCW tag title belt. And Mr. T, yes, Mr. T, the Hall of Famer, beat Kevin Sullivan and Sting, pinned the avalanche John Tenta. So Mr. T beat Kevin Sullivan, yes, and Sting pinned a.k.a. Earthquake, now known as Avalanche in WCW, the late John Tenta. Johnny B. Babb was victorious over Arn Anderson for the TV title in a match where Anderson was the last-minute substitute for the honky-tonk man who walked out of WCW just moments before the match was to begin. He had a very brief run in the organization. Also, Jean-Paul Levesque, the future Triple H, lost to then-WCW rookie Dust Wonderkin Alex Wright. The main event was a letdown, however, as Hogan defended the WCW Championship against longtime friend turned rival, The Butcher and Leslie. Yes, Brutus the Barber Beefcake took on Hulk Hogan in their main show, their main event of the year. The true main event of Starcade should have been the couple months prior. Bash at the Beach when Hulk Hogan won the WCW title from the Nature Boy Ric Flair. Now, I know they wanted to capitalize on Hogan right away and get him into a matchup, but this could have waited an extended period of time, allowing this buildup, have Hogan debut without winning the title, have him debut against, you know, you could have him go against Vader, you know, the big monster, or, you know, you could have him face uh, some top-tier opponents leading up to Ric Flair, building up so he could earn that championship match. But instead, we've received The Butcher, Brutus Beefcake against 
the immortal Hulk Hogan for the WWE Championship, a letdown of a starcade to say the least. 1995 was the World Cup of Wrestling, another concept that I liked, but maybe it wasn't perfect for your granddaddy show, Starcade. Well, the event now was used again as a concept show. Seven singles matches between New Japan and WSW stars would determine who would win the World Cup of Wrestling. TNA did something similar during their Cup Series. Sting beat WSW United States Champion Kintsuki Sasaki to win the Series 4-3. Sting did double duty on the show as he also met Ric Flair and Lex Luger in a triangle match to earn a WCW title shot. Flair ended up winning the bout and then beat the Macho Man Randy Savage to win the WCW title later in the evening. Savage had also wrestled earlier in the evening as he beat Tenzan as part of the WCW New Japan series. Again, another concept that could have been more suited for another event, maybe a Super Brawl, as you could have built a better matchup and storyline up to Ric Flair versus Macho Man, their rematch from WrestleMania. This time, Macho Man, Randy Savage coming in as champion and Flair coming in as challenger. But another year, Starcade used as a concept show. Great concept, but the big matches, the big storyline story should be left for the granddaddy, Starcade. In 95 into 96, we enter the NWO era of Starcade. The New World Order had come into existence by late 96, and the formula of NWO main events in the main event matches itself, accentuated by cruiserweight matches acting as opening match show stealers, really had taken shape at this point, where the undercard was overshadowing the main card, the main matches, the upper card. Ultimo Dragon beat Dean Malenko for the cruiserweight title, and Rey Mysterio Jr. and Jushin Thunder Liger put on a clinic of a match. Meanwhile, the Outsiders, Scott Hall and Kevin Ash, defended their tag team titles against the Faces of Fear, Ming and the Barbarian, and Lex Luger beat NWO Turncoat the Giant. Now the big show. The main event was another disappointment as Roddy Piper beat Hulk Hogan with a sleeper, but apparently the WCW Championship was not on the line, so the win meant nothing in the long run. Even Dusty Rhodes seemed confused as he thought Piper was the champion. Again, you built up to another great storyline feud, but it had a flat ending. As you weren't sure if the title was on the line, they made it very elusive, very mysterious. It wasn't really mentioned because, of course, Hogan was going to do the job, but didn't want to lose the title. So, in turn, Piper made the title of Icon on the line, Icon versus Icon. Then, even after that match, everyone was calling themselves Icon, Macho Man, and so forth. Ric Flair, then Bret Hart, everyone was declared an Icon after that match. But Icon versus Icon could have been built, been built better if you look back at it in hindsight piper hogan that's a wrestlemania match of course the first ever wrestlemania now in a wsw ring as piper debuted just a couple months prior at halloween havoc another similar situation as we mentioned with hulk hogan debuting months prior at bash at the beach you know in uh early 94 or midway through 94 and then rushing the championship victory to a main event with British Beefcake. Now you have 
Roddy Piper, the legendary Rowdy Roddy Piper coming in. And yes, it was two months in between the debut and the Star K match, but you could have built it up a little bit more. And the title should be on the line in your main match of your big show. But it was a moment to see Roddy Piper pin or should I say defeat Hulk Hogan via submission in the sleeper hold. And in turn, Hogan did a job to Piper. Piper kicks Hogan down. Piper up in it. Choke Piper's a bite and he bit him right on the nose. He's gouging the giant. There you go. The giant's up. He's got rid of the giant. Well, it's just Piper and Hogan. What is behind him right there? Sleeper on. He's got the sleeper on, Hogan. Good night, Irene. He's got him. He's got him hooked good. Real good. I told you. He's got him hooked good as right. And he goes down. Got him down. And the referee Anderson is still on top of the ball game right there. Check his arms. Check his arms. He's going out. He is going out. Yes, he is. Randy Anderson's got it up for one. He's got it up for two. Here it comes. We got it. We got it. Standing on Hogan with one foot. There's the legend. There's Hulk Hogan. There's the icon in this sport. And here comes bad news. The giant is up. Piper! Yeah, don't wait. Don't wait, baby. Go ahead. Deal on him. Roddy Piper's got to fight off the outsiders. Get out of there. Fight out of there. Stick and move. Stick and move. Stick and move. And that's what he's doing. Find your way out, brother. There you go. There's your winner. There's the man with the bad hip. That came all the way from home. Hey, this might be a minute point, boy, but that's a, this is the WCW World Heavyweight Champion right here. Is it or is it not? I don't know. The fight was doing. He sure did take it to him. Hogan is still out. Hogan is sound asleep. The Giant continues to stand at the apron of the ring. World Champion is laid out, brother. I guarantee you that much. And Rowdy Rowdy Piper. Wait a minute, the Uh-oh. light bulb's gone on. And Look at here, there he is, little coat. With one of his children. Yeah, came right out to him right there, brother. Which what an one? emotional thing that is. Celebrating the win for Piper. And the giant, what's going through his mind? He had him up in the choke slam. It Piper. doesn't matter. Piper the winner is Piper. Piper beat the man who never beat him. The 1997 version of Starcade was meant to be the end-all, be-all of blow-off supercards, as the card was populated by WSW versus NWO matches. This year, as opposed to the years prior, was what the show was meant for, to build up a long-standing feud and rivalry. But again, it suffered a flat ending Logical Booking said that the WSW stalwarts would steamroll over their New World Order rivals and put this long-standing vendetta to bed. Instead, though, the NWO team of Randy Savage, Vincent, a.k.a. Virgil, and Scott Norton beat the Steiner Brothers and Ray Trailer, the boss man, and Buff Bagwell beat Lex Luger. Diamond Dallas Page did win the U.S. title from Kurt Henning, and Larry Zabisco did beat Eric Bischoff for control of Monday Nitro. 
But the night all hinged upon the Sting Hulk Hogan WCW Championship match that was over a year in the making. This is what this show was meant to be. Logic and storyline seemed to point to an easy victory for the Stinger, but unfortunately, the expected squash was not what happened. As muddled officiating with Nick Patrick and Brett the Hitman Hart, who arrived in WSW, led to a tainted victory for Sting, and ultimately the championship being held up. The 1-2-3 spot was blown by Nick Patrick as it was supposed to be a fast count, but it wasn't really a fast count. Bret Hart deciding to come in to interrupt a non-issue in an aspect. It was a convoluted ending. It should have been basic. Sting beating Hogan, taking back the WSW title, wiping away those NWO initials on the big gold belt. He did win, but in a very sloppy fashion, very anticlimactic. And that is what you should not have for your biggest event of the year. And some say, a lot say, especially we mentioned in our WSW 101 series, that this point could have been the the start of the downfall. The next year's event featured more questionable booking in what seemed like a surefire event. The event was headlined by a Goldberg-Kevin Nash WSW bout. Goldberg had been undefeated for over a year at this point and was riding high as WSW's franchise player. The fans were still solidly behind Goldberg, and the phenomenon that it was, and now at this point was not the time for him to drop the title. Unfortunately, Nash was the matchmaker at the time and put himself over Goldberg on the company's biggest show of the year. Goldberg never really recovered fully after that point. Feelings aside, the rest of the card was made up of useless mid-card filler matches. You had Prince Ikea and Norman Smiley, Perry Saturn, Ernest Miller, and an unannounced, unneeded Scott Norton, Brian Adams versus Fit Finley and Jerry Flynn tag match. Really, at your your version of WrestleMania? The semi-main event featured Eric Bischoff going over Ric Flair and DDP beating the Giant. The high points of the card were the opening cruiserweight bouts, which was common, where we saw Kidman beat Rey Mysterio Jr. and Juventud Guerrero, and then immediately pin Eddie Guerrero for the Cruiserweight title. Great undercard and opening matches, but again, like the previous years, a pattern forming here. A storyline, an undefeated challenger in Goldberg finally wins the title against Hollywood Hogan. And where do you go from there? It went to Kevin Nash and the streak being broken. That was the best thing WSW did in months, and it was a homegrown talent that they built up, especially the ending of Scott Hall coming out, returning, and using a taser on Goldberg to get the victory. It wasn't even earned legitimately. So again, fans were left hanging, very flat once again. Three in a row looking back at it. You can go even further back, possibly, a trend starting to form with Starcades as potential marquee matchups could have had and some did happen with Sting and Hogan but then they dropped the ball very flat endings for your biggest show of the year Kevin Nash goes down what is this what is he doing here this Wolfpack wannabe guess he's trying to prove that he deserves a right to wear those clothes Absolutely it is. 
And Bigelow, once again, uninvited. Whoa! Not supposed to be here. Sending him to jail. Meanwhile, Nash gets a break. By 1999, Vince Russo was in charge of WSW and its head booker by the time Starcade 99 rolled around. And in pure Russo fashion, the card was loaded with too many matches featuring too many gimmicks and stipulations. The only real noteworthy event to come out of the card was the main event featuring Bret Hart and Goldberg for the WSW Championship. Hart ended up winning the match, but losing his career as an errant superkick from Goldberg gave Hart a serious concussion. He ended up forfeiting the matchup and ultimately retiring from the sport altogether after the match. Then the final Starcade to take place was in the year 2000, just a few months before WSW would be sold to the World Wrestling Federation. The card was 12 matches deep with a combination of old WSW mainstays combined with the new WSW Power Plant Training Center graduates. It created an interesting mix of talent, to say the least. The main match was Scott Steiner beating Sid Vicious in a WWE Championship bout. Steiner was on a great streak as a monster heel champion that hadn't been seen since Vader, at least since Big Van Vader, and was one of WWE's best things in its dying days. Semi-main events included Kevin Nash and DDP beating The Graduates, Chuck Palumbo and Sean Stasiak for the WWE Tag Team Championships, and Goldberg defeating Lex Luger. The highlight of the show was the triple threat ladder match that saw three count. Shane Helms and Shannon Moore defeat the Young Dragons, Kaz and Yang, and Jamie Noble and Evan Courageous. That is the only match I would suggest to go out to watch in that Starcade, as it was an unfortunate year as it truly showed the times and the dying days of WSW. It is amazing that two years prior... To the inaugural WrestleMania, Dusty Rhodes had invented or was the mastermind behind Starcade. The Starcades of the 90s are not as good as their 80 counterparts, of course, you can't deny that. But then again, none of WSW big events are as good as their earlier versions. The main events, as we documented here tonight, were built up to be epic encounters, but over the the last few years of Starcade's history, we saw a decline of where they may have had that big event, but it was a letdown, a flat ending. And in a sense, if you just look at the lifespan of WCW, and in the early days, of course, of WCW when it was the NWA, 
from the beginning of Starcade through their peak, through the historic matches between Ric Flair, Sting, and uh, Dusty Rhodes and Ric Flair, the unbelievable matches between those stars, the peak, you know, then it enters the early 90s, the testing with concept shows, Battle Bowl, the Lethal Lottery, and then round, rounding through the mid-90s, enter Hulk Hogan, and then you see business decline for WSW after their peak of the NWO, and as well as the quality of Starcade dipped. So you can kind of translate the peak of the company and then the downfall can be seen through the history of Starcade. No matter how you look at it, Starcade will go down as a staple in early 80s through late 80s professional wrestling. You throw in the whole decade, 80s wrestling and Starcade go hand in hand. I suggest going back, going to the WWE Network, check out Starcade 87, this forgotten super card, the unbelievable matches on that card. There are many great matches in Starcade history, but the one we'll call for our match of the week, check out the Rock and Roll Express versus the Midnight Express in that scaffold match. All the negatives aside, Starcade has given wrestling fans so many memories. And it gave the platform to elevate stars into another dimension and gave a stage, which we all witnessed some of the greatest matches in professional wrestling history. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. You're listening to the Retro Wrestling Podcast, Beyond the Bell. You can listen to Beyond the Bell on iTunes, Player.fm, the SNS Radio Network, Podbay.fm, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and our official website, BTBcast.com. Connect socially on Facebook and Twitter at BTBcast. Watch retro videos on our official YouTube channel, BTBcast Network. Questions, comments, and suggestions can be sent to contact at btbcast.com go old school with beyond the bell old school fans we are going to wrap up the first official season of beyond the bell we've had many episodes but we finally reformatted the show into a seasonal format in which the first season is coming to its conclusion with the final two-part series looking back at some of wsw's greatest gems of all time All-time greatest gems, a two-parter. We have 20 moments. We'll break it up into two separate editions, and we'll give you some moments to relive. We've mentioned most of them. We're just going to recap them for you. You can follow along or watch them after we describe these events. There'll be some events we didn't really talk about or glossed over. So I thought it'd be great to really cap off WCW covering its greatest gems, its all-time greatest moments throughout its entire history. So that two-parter will wrap up season one and we're going to continue on with Beyond the Bell. Don't worry. With season two chronicling a certain Hall of Famer, a certain legend, the Stone Cold Chronicles, reliving the career of Stone Cold Steve Austin. I'm so excited to reproduce those shows for you. We have so much content for the next upcoming season. I'm so excited to bring that to you. And in regards to Starcade. Like I mentioned a couple episodes ago, I was unsure if I was going to split up Starcade into separate editions or separate installments or recap it all in one special episode. So as you see, I decided to go with the latter and produce it all in one history combining edition. But I decided also to keep the first idea alive as an 
like I stated previously, in a future season of Beyond the Bell, not sure when it will be, the entire season will cover each and every Starcade in detail, as I've been doing previously with WrestleMania. So don't worry for Starcade fans if you think this was too abbreviated and want to go over the actual storylines for each match and and the backdrop before and what happened after the events took place. Don't worry, we will, we will cover the history of Starcade year by year in a separate season of Beyond the Bell. Tons of other WSW content will be coming as well. We're going to look back at the Four Horsemen, look back at other superstars and Hall of Famers, Ric Flair, Sting. So don't worry, WSW will be covered in future seasons of Beyond the Bell. But the last two editions of this season will be WSW's Greatest Gems of All Time, or All Time Greatest Moments, Greatest Gems of World Championship Wrestling. Until then, fans, I'm your old school host, Sean Beckerman, signing off. And remember, always stay old school, my retro hardcore fans.